0: You are listening to UBC Waco podcast. (laughs) Are you recording? Yeah. Oh, okay. We can use that as just a scratch track for now. Good morning. Welcome to University of Baptist Church. If you're new here, my name is Josh. Uh, If you're here all the time, I'm glad you're here. Um, I just give me a minute here. I just got my word and I'm trying to find a strategic place to put it in the sermon where it's seamless and you don't know why or how I did that or if that makes sense. But I just saved myself a bunch of money by not buying donuts for the kids. Um, Okay, we'll just have to try and do this on the fly. Put that there, hopefully I don't forget, or else I'm out 20 bucks. So, okay, you guys have a good week? Did you go to the places, the beaches, and the mountains, and the oceans, and the, I don't know, where do people go? Uh, Waco, Magnolia, to see the silos for the 100th time, huh? Wild week for you. Second to last one for me. So uh, on that note, um, I've been asking myself the question, what does a fellow do with these last couple of weeks? And uh, to frame this, because I have stepped away from the lectionary and a pretty critical moment in the church calendar, which is Lent, um, I will call this in my 15 years of preaching, uh, the one thing, the one teaching that I can't seem to get anybody excited about. Uh, The one thing that there's just not buy-in and it doesn't really matter if if you're a, a liberal or a Democrat you're a socialist, a capitalist, whatnot. Uh, I just, people aren't jumping in line. So I'll give it one last whirl. and may get booed off the stage, but what are you going to do, fire me? So there's that. Uh, Okay, I'm going to begin with a quote that I have taken off Facebook from my friend Craig Nash. It's rather lengthy. I'm going to read the first two paragraphs here, then whoop, very strategically, Um, bookendishly. I will read the second two paragraphs of the quote at the end of the sermon because it worked well that way. All right, so Credit Craig. Here's what he says. Christians in the U.S., I am part of a generation that we thought was the tail end of a period of being fearful of Russia. For those of you who grew up in uh, a conservative and evangelical circles, our elders sought to make sense of that fear and the geopolitical conditions that created it by telling us something along the lines, this has all been prophesied in the book of Revelation. The book's dragons and bears and beasts were connected to our countries and our dictators and decisions uh, that were unfolding before our very eyes. Many of you already know this, but in case you've never been told, allow me to herald, be the herald of some fantastic news. You don't have to recreate the spiritual trauma for children that those of us who grew up in that uh, specter of the Soviet Union had in our lives. The book of Revelation isn't about the Soviet Union or Russia or Stalin or Khrushchev or Yel- Yeltsin or Putin. It's not about Obama or Osama or Clinton or Trump or Biden. There are better ways of understanding a world than forcing meaning on a wholly ancient book. Okay, so... The plot thickens. Um, there's this, I think the worst uh, Steven Spielberg movie that came out years and years ago called AI. I don't know if you liked it. I thought it was terrible. It was Haley Jill remember him? I see dead people. Um, and so he's a robot, uh, 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 right, AI. And um, he has been programmed to be a child. So he's adopted by some, some folks who want a child. And then they have a real child, so they're not interested in the robot child anymore. Very tragic. Uh, so he's on this journey. And um, this is all superfluous, I don't want to tell you this. Uh, Near the end of the movie, though, he's in this submarine-ish flying vehicle. It's the future, right? Um, And him and his robot teddy bear are there. And they uh, are in, I'm going to make this up, New York. And it's the future, so the world's underwater, so these skyscrapers are sticking out. And they're flying around, and somehow they end up in the water. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. And they sink to the bottom of the ocean, and they're in, you know, the city, you know, Macy's, whatever, and they're they're in this submarine thing. Uh, But they're intact because, you know, technology and Things are good, so then at the the end of the movie, I don't know, millions of years later, hundreds of thousands, thousands of years later, some aliens come and they find this well-preserved submarine AI kid and his teddy bear robot um, who are just like frozen for thousands of years. They don't care, they're robots. And um, for these aliens, this is very exciting because, oh my gosh, what a a well-preserved piece of um, uh, of history, right? Um, And so much in the same way that we dust off bricks with paintbrushes and say, well, how do they build things here? Look at this, this is fantastic. These aliens are very excited to have found Haley Joel Osment uh, because he's a clue to the past, right? So, um, but this has its limitations because without context, even the best pieces of history don't have explicit context. So for example, suppose you and I uh, were coming to this planet, we knew nothing about humanity, and the only thing we found was like a Dr. Seuss book. Uh, What might we assume about the history of this civilization with this clue. Well, um, you know, we, we would say, well, this is a world where I guess everything rhymed, right? Like if we could figure out the language. And um, green eggs and ham were a very popular meal during this time. And we might conclude that uh, cats were very large and they walked around on two feet and they caused trouble and they were funny hats, right? Um, and what all of that would mean is that in fact we had failed to understand uh, the genre of the artifact that we had found. Um, I want to propose that a lot of the misunderstanding that has happened, particularly with the book of Revelation, stems from something very similar. So first, for most of the sermon, I'm just going to give you historical data, um, and at the end we will read the scriptures together. So, uh, I want to begin by showing you a map, last two weeks here, get to show you another exciting map, okay. This one is again Turkey, which is obvious by the shape um, and the silhouette. Um, within the uh, country of Turkey, maybe called Macedonia, East Asia, whatever back then, is a city called Ephesus, right? And and you know about Ephesus because Paul wrote a church to the the, uh, city there. And uh, inside of Ephesus, there was this thing called the Agora. Um, And the Agora was a, a trade center. And the Agora was where all the spices and the exciting things that were coming from the East and Indian would come, and then it was on a trade route. So also the ideas and the technology and the, the good things from the West and Rome would come here. And so it was this cultural, interesting place where the East and the, the West, the, the fabrics, the spices, all that was there, it was very exciting. So the Agora was this hot spot in Ephesus. And um, Ephesus was ruled by gods who um, were part of the Roman Empire, right? And uh, keep, in mind, keep in mind this whole time, the relationship between uh, the gods and, and the civic religion of the day. Um, so, but if you wanted to sell in the Agora, and, and everybody wanted to do this because how, how do you live if you can't participate in the market? You had to first offer incense to the gods. And um, so if you're, if you're Rome, um, getting to trade in the Agora is a privilege, and so you, um, you want to keep track of this. You want to make sure that the right people are getting in. And so how do you do this? How do you know who has offered incense and said, Hail, Caesar, and pledged their life and fidelity to the empire, and who hasn't? Well, the way you would do this is you would give them like an ink stain, On their hand or maybe like you would inject a microchip into their veins or something you know and um so the the jews saw this as a problem and the early christians saw this as a problem because of course there's this fidelity issue why would you express fidelity even for the sake of something as as frivolous as as, um getting to trade in the market um, if you have this ultimate fidelity to god and so there was this really tough question that existed for first century christians and the question is Do I take the mark of the beast? Because anybody who set themselves up against God and demanded worship from you in apocalyptic literature is referred to as a beast. Like, So you've got kids. uh, You've got to buy milk. uh, You you have to make some money to support your family. Do you take the mark of the beast? Um, Now I want to show you a list of, a lot of this is going to be non sequiturs, okay? I'm just going to ramble through data, but hang with me, okay? Here's a list of the Caesars. Uh, You know some of them, Julius Caesar, right? Uh, Then jump ahead, like a couple uh, decades, and you got Augustus, who we want to talk about at length here. So Julius Caesar dies, and allegedly a comment appears in the sky, and, and 12 witnesses see this, and Augustus, who will eventually consolidate power through a bunch of shady political business, says, of course you saw a comment, that was Julius Caesar ascending to the heavens. And so this phrase became popular, I saw the Son of God ascend to the right hand of the Father. And if Julius Caesar is God, and Augustus is not his biological child, but for the purposes of, of history, his, his son and his father has ascended and sit at the right hand of God, what does that make Augustus? Augustus is now The Son of God. So when this happens, Augustus starts this systematic campaign to let everyone know that he in fact is the Son of God, God incarnate, set to bring peace and prosperity. His choice of words, not mine. Um, So also we should know that in this period, there's sort of an astrological called alignment of pagan prophecy, Virgil, and others, uh, that all suggested that something was in the air. Something big was about to happen. Someone was coming who was going to mediate between heaven and earth and reverse the fortune of the human condition, someone to ratify the problem of the cosmos. And so Virgil, who I just mentioned, and other pagan poets posed this question to Augustus when he came to power, and the question was this. Are you the one who is to come? So if we were to flip open our Bible, say, to like Luke 7.20... What we would find is John the Baptist in prison sends somebody to ask Jesus this question, and that question is, are you the one who is to come? The question didn't come out of a vacuum. Everybody was asking this question, but all the leaders during this period. So Augustus comes to power, and um, he begins this, wait for it, 12-day celebration, which is called Advent. Now, in our tradition, what do we have between uh, December 25th and uh, January 6th? We call this the Christmas season. How long is that? 12 days. Wow, wait. where would we get that idea? We stole it. Uh, so, Augustus has assembles this youth choir to follow him around. And what the, their job is, their sole job is to proclaim the eternal reign to come and to mediate between heaven and earth. Uh, their songs use language from nature, and they would sing stuff like the lion will lay down with the lamb. They talked about joy and salvation. Uh, Augustus had coins minted, and on them he popularized phrases like, no one save Augustus, by which men can be saved. Uh, his priests, during these 12 days, offered sacrifices. They had these bronze bowls, and they would offer these uh, sacrifices. You'd have to see it to kind of, of course it was not in... Rome in the first century didn't see this, been told. Uh, they would take this like little incense stuff and they roll it in a ball and drop it. And they would offer incense. And this was for the forgiveness of sins. So emperor worship under Augustus blows up. It becomes huge. Let's return to our Caesar list again, right? We have uh, Julius Augustus Tiberius. That's who was in charge when Jesus died. Shame on him. Big blood on his name. Caligula Claudius, you know, Nero Vespasian. J- jump down to Domitian, Okay. This is, uh, well, I have the dates here. I was going to say 90-ish, is that right? Yep, 81 through 96, okay? Uh, here's a picture of him. He's clearly stoned. Um, did him, One thing exciting for you, the dad jokes will probably die, so that's good for life. Um, just some data on him so we can think about how lovely and fluffy he was. Uh, Domitian demanded that his wife call him, my lord and my god. Feminists just love him. Uh, He gave this imperial edict from the get-go that all statues of him must be made of gold. Uh, He began every letter he wrote, our Lord and our God commands you. Um, He believed that he was the son of God who was brought about to bring peace and salvation. He had a choir of, note this in your head, 24 singers who would go before him and after him to honor him. And they would sing, our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. Uh, sometimes when people get political power, it goes to their head and they have a little bit of an ego thing. So, fuzzy, warm, demission. He was famous. These are all anecdotes. There was a gladiator match and a gladiator was being heckled. Domitian got annoyed. He pointed to the person in the audience and said, throw them to the animals. Uh, there was a priest who offended him. So Domitian had this priest buried alive. Uh, the Nanzomians, an entire group offended him. He wrote them a letter, said, I cease to uh, permit you to exist, and had them all wiped out. There was um, rumors of a revolt in a region called Saturninus, And so um, eventually he would have them all killed. But to warn them, he invited their their politicians and whatnot to dinner, and he had their meals served to them on their tombstones, a subtle reminder to what would happen to the province if they revolted. I have another picture. This is Domitian, and he is holding a scroll. This is in the Vatican Museums. Um, A bit about the the scroll. Uh, The scroll would contain all the divine names of the Caesar, and it was... Keeping the names was a symbol of power. And so there was this question. It was a political move. Uh, and it was, um, who got to open the scroll? Who was worthy to open the scroll? Uh, because the scroll contained all the reasons and the rights that the Caesar had to rule. And, and to hold the scroll, was, it was, of course, a metaphor. But it, was, uh, it meant that you had the, rule, the, the right to rule history, right? Uh, Domitian games. So um, if, if you're an emperor called person and you, know, you pick your Greek people, uh, you know, whoever, Zeus, Poseidon, Persephone, whatever, um, you, would, you would have these festive things in honor of these people and in yourself. And so um, Domitian had his own Olympics in his honor. He filled a stadium with sixty to 100,000 people. And in the center of this, he had a throne. And um, at the beginning of this event, of these Olympics, there would be these different provinces that would come and report to them. And then Domitian would address them. And the way he would address them is he would begin by saying to the leaders of blah, 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 uh, to the others of the province of, I have this for you. And then Domitian would proceed then to list all the things that were going right in this community and the things they were doing well, and then there'd be a dramatic comma. He said, but I have this against you. And then Domitian would list all the things that they didn't, weren't doing right, and he would say, and if you don't change, I will snuff you out. Uh, Then began the worship portion of the games, and the priests would lead masses and worship them, and this is key. They wore white robes, these priests, and they had these gold crowns, and on these crowns, on their forehead, were written the divine names of the Caesar, so as to remind people um, who they were being led in worship of. And so they would lead this massive group of 60 to 100,000 people in this song, and the song went like this. Great are you, our Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of earth, to inherit the kingdom. Lord of lords, highest of highs. Lord of earth, God of all things. Lord, God, and Savior for eternity. Uh, When Domitian took his strengths finder, uh, humility did not come up very high on the list. Uh, One of the highlights at these games was that there would be a horse race involving four horses of four colors. And at the end of the games, a rider would come out always on a pale horse wearing the mask of the Greek hero Hades, and that person's job was to clean up all of the dead bodies. Uh, every emperor would have something called a neochorus. This is like a, a national headquarters of worship, right? So one of his predecessors, a guy named Vespasian, had a, a massive platform built, I think, in Ephesus, and um When Domitian came to power, because we've seen he struggles with the eagle a little bit, he's like, i got to do better. So on top of this platform, he has a temple built. uh, And and the platform, by the way, has these these 24 arches. um, And these 24 arches um, are spaces for all of the gods of the Greek pantheon, so Zeus and Hermes and Apollo. And so the symbol being his his temple stands on the backs of these gods. And on top of this, he has this 27-foot statue of himself, uh, this is in the Ephesus Museum. Um, and I have a picture of it, right? Okay, so there's his head and his arm. I, I think I have another picture so you can have reference. There's like a person walking away, right? So you can see how large this is, right? Just that like elbow to the top of the hand is like nine feet, right? So this massive statue on top of this platform. And, and the reason he does this is because it is on, uh, it's on the Bay of the Aegean, right? So if you're coming in from the port, what is this thing you're seeing from miles and miles away? this menacing figure to remind you who has power and who is in, in control. Um, or if you're coming up over the mountains from the other way, what is the first thing you would see in the distance? Is this massive statue of Domitian to remind you who has power and who is in control. Uh, there was a problem for Domitian, and it was this. There was a group of people in Ephesus a small group of people who refused to bow down and worship. They refused to participate in the, the bronze bowl of, of emperor worship and roll up the little ball of wax and say, Hail, Caesar. Um, and so uh, there was a problem because these incense altars existed, I think, in the street. I have a picture of them, right? And Domitian would come to town and he would stand on these and it was like, everybody's chance to say, Hail, Caesar, and bow down. But this group in Ephesus refused to do this. So there's rumors that Domitian is coming next week for his birthday. And the question is, what, what do you do? Um, Domitian could have them all killed because that's what his history suggests he would do. He could have them all slaughtered. Um, uh, And there is evidence from antiquity that there was persecution during this time. It's a little bit debated. Um, However, if you're a ruler, it it may not be expedient to kill the people of your empire no matter how big your ego is. So Domitian reasoned that, in fact, uh, he would implement a different strategy. He thought if he could just cut off their leader that maybe the thing would fizzle and dissolve. So he finds their pastor, there's a guy named John, and he has them exiled to an island called Patmos. So this pastor, John, is now there. And while he's there, he has a vision. And in exi- ex- exile, he writes them a letter. We happen to have a copy. So um, John sees this worship service, and uh, he sees that it's unbelievable. Not unlike the Domitian games, it's a stadium filled with hundreds and thousands and ten thousands times ten thousands. That's Bible for, wow, a lot, Google. And, um, and they're having this, this party, and this party holds the eternal reign of God forever, and it's very exciting. He has a view of this. Uh, so I'd like to read for you a, a bit of, of different sections of this vision that John has. This first part, Revelation 2, 1 through 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. I know you cannot tolerate evildoers. You have tested those who claim to be apostles, but are not. And you have found them to be false. I also know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for the sake of my name, and that you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, then, from what you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this is to your credit. You hate the works of Nicolay and Nicolai. we'll try that. Uh, by the way, some people think this group is a group who said, eh, it's, it's just it's just a sacrifice, It's just, just do this, it doesn't matter what you actually believe, uh, which I also hate. Let anyone who has ear listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. To everyone who conquers, I will give permission to eat from the tree of life, that is, In the paradise of God. Now we will jump to Revelation 4 5 through 10. Buckle up, this is a little bit longer. But what we're going to do now is listen with all the data we've been given. After this, I looked, and there were in heaven uh, a door stood open, and the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once, I was in the spirit and there in heaven stood a throne with one seated on the throne. And the one seated there looks like Jasper and Cornelian and around the throne is a rainbow that looks like an emerald. Around the throne are 24 thrones and seated on the thrones are 24 elders dressed in white robes with golden crowns on their head. Coming from the throne are flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And in front of the throne burn seven flaming torches, which are seven spirits of God. And in front of the throne there are something like a sea of glass, like crystal around the throne. And each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front of ba- and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third uh, like a face of a human, and the fourth like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each of them wearing six wings are full of eyes all around and inside, day and night, without ceasing, they sing holy, 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 the Lord all God, Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Very popular song, by the way. Uh, and where whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to the one who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall before the one who is seated on the throne and worship the one who lives ever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne singing, you are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things. By your will they existed and were created. Then I saw on the right hand of the one seated on the throne a scroll written and on the inside of it and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth, under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep bitterly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look at it or into it. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep, see the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Then I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders a a lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered, having the seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out onto all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of the one who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures the 24 elders fell before the Lamb, each holding a harp and a golden bowl full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, and they sing a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, for where you were slaughtered and by your blood the ransom for God, saints from every tribe and language and the people of the nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests serving our God, and they will reign on earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels surrounding the throne, and the living creatures and the elders, and they numbered myriads and myriads, and thousands of thousands, singing with a full voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, singing to the one who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshiped. That's more scripture than you usually get in Baptist church, huh? Look what I did in one of my last Sundays. Take that, fundamentalists. We beat you. So, a question with all of that. The comments I read for you at the beginning of the sermon in mind, uh, who is Revelation written for? Uh, There is a a view called preterism. Preterism. Um, And it is a view that Revelation was written to address all the events in the first century and it's kind of done with. And of course, there's a ton of historical data that would make sense of that claim for us. Um, There's another view, and that is to suggest, it's a version of this, but essentially that Revelation was um, written to address, yes, the first century problem of persecution, but um, in in perpetuity, it's there for all of us as anti-assimilation literature. Um, That is, it is a letter written to the church through the ages to admonish us not to become like the powerful who would achieve their ends through violence and dominance. Um, the strength of this reading is that it allows us to keep reading Revelation in our contemporary contexts. And when people are allowed to do that, Revelation keeps preaching. Um, but that pliability can go all kinds of ways, uh, for better or worse. So we come out of like an interesting three or four decades, as Craig has alluded to. But like you could point to things like... Um, what the late Great Planet Earth and the Left Behind series and whatnot, and get all kinds of exciting takes and all this. Um, another thing that people can do with this pliability is sort of pick out the bad guys and, and take them with interesting monikers, uh, for example, Antichrist. So just to give you an idea how this has been done in history, uh, we'll take a quick look at this. There was Nero. Um, and this is very compelling because, you know, the Hebrew, and they do these numerology thing, and it's letters. and num- If you add this up, nearly equals 666. So there's good argument that that's it. Here's some others, though. Athanasius, one of the bulldogs in the first few centuries of, of the church, um, when Constantinius was persecuting the church who uh, favored certain um, congregations that denied the deity of Jesus, he accused him of being an antichrist. Uh, Martin Luther... Uh, accused Pope Leo X of being an antichrist. Um, Leo Tolstoy's novel, War and Peace, um, there's a character, uh, Pierre, who turns Leo Emperor Napoleon into a series of numbers that add up to 666. Um, I forgot my Hitler slide, but you all know who that is and what he looks like, right? Um, There are some folks who notice that if you assign um, 100 to the letter A and 101 to B, so on, right? C, 103, you add up Hitler equals 666. Uh, So he was an antichrist. Uh, JFK. Oh, no, did I have my... Okay, I do have my JFK slide. Um, he received 666 votes in the 1956 Democratic Convention. So he later died of a hand wound, too. So note that if you keep reading in Revelation. Uh, then um, the 1980s became a, a circus of like theological McCarthyism. Everybody turned out to be the, the uh, Antichrist. You had, what Kissinger, Reagan, Gorbachev. They said his birthmark looked like a six. Uh, you had Pope John Paul, everybody... And of course, this was the world on edge the last time that Russia had power, right? Um, but the cat was out of the bag. And so the Antichrist accusations have kept coming. What you have uh, President Obama, President Clinton, or I'm uh, not Obama, Bill Gates, right? Uh, one of the most compelling suggestions, I think, that has some merit is that the internet, in fact, is the Antichrist, at least social media, right? Um, one of the most sophisticated accusations is probably this uh, one would be aspiring theological genius. Notice that if you write cute purple dinosaur, and ancient Latin characters, and it becomes cute purple dinosaur with um, the, the Roman monikers, uh, and you extract the Roman numbers, that all adds up to uh, together, cvvldiv To and you get the real 666, leading some to believe that the Antichrist is in fact Barney the dinosaur. <laughs> so uh, people get a little willy-nilly with this, is my point, right? And this can be the bad of, of the, uh, the pliability of Revelation. Here's the second part of Craig's reading and we'll get to the conclusion. This has been a lot, I apologize. Uh, Craig says, that doesn't mean Revelation isn't relevant to what's going on the news. It's incredibly relevant. It reminds us that violence has always been the way of the world, but it does not have to be. It teaches us that our hope is in the Lamb who was slain, not a tank, chariot, missile that might destroy our enemies. It allows us to stand peacefully defiant in the face of those who believe God has ordained their nation, their club, their empire to have wider boundaries than they currently have. I had the thought today that tomorrow morning in churches across the country a message of fear and hysteria will be preached, sowing seeds of anxiety and paranoia that have driven many in my generation away from communities of faith. I just wanted you to know, in case you didn't already, that you don't have to stand for that. There's a better, more faithful way. If you want to talk about the Lamb who was slain, if you want to critique the Antichrist of the day, if you want to join the chorus of singing that has been going on for centuries and centuries, and you have to follow Jesus all the way to the cross, and that means you have to embrace the radical truth that your enemy, that those that we would call antichrists, are also created in the image of God. The hardest teaching that Jesus gives us, I promise you, is one of nonviolence. Uh, The truth is, I have moved away from using the phrase I'm a pacifist, to saying that I believe that Jesus commands nonviolence and requires nonviolence of his followers. And the reason I do that, because the truth is, what could you possibly know, or how could you possibly know what you would do until you're in that situation? Uh, If I had opportunity to kill Russians with a press of a button and that would save my family, would I do that? Probably. And I certainly um, don't exercise or get to exercise judgments about the geopolitical military choices of the Ukraine from the comforts of my couch here in America. But if I'm a Christian, the other thing I don't get to do is to stop believing that people fighting on both sides of that war are created in the image of God. I wanted to end uh, with this to leave you with a few words and images both to complicate our judgments about Ukraine and Russia and also to encourage you. Um, our scripture reading today was Ephesians 6.12. St. Paul said, for they wrestle not against flesh and blood but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of darkness in this world, and against spiritual wickedness in the high places. Um, That is a confession of a person who understands that their enemy is made in the image of God. Uh, So first, just a few images to end with. Um, A text exchange between a fallen Russian soldier and his mother a few hours before he died. Um, Of course, anything on the internet you have to question, but this was used by Zelensky on the the floor of, of his political whatever they are and also a few news sources. Uh, You can see the confusion here and and the heartbreak. Uh, Son, mama, I'm no longer in Crimea. I'm in training sessions. Mother, why are you uh, there then? Papa is asking if I can send you a parcel. What kind of parcel? Mama, can you send me? Uh, What are you talking about? What happened? Mama, I'm in Ukraine. There's a real war raging here, I'm afraid. We are bombing all the cities together, even targeting civilians. We were told they would welcome us, and they are falling under armored vehicles, throwing themselves under the wheels, not allowing us to pass. They call us fascists. Mama, this is so hard. This is a desperate cry of a human who is a pawn of a ruler who has let power go to his head and who has forgotten what humanity is. Now for some interesting images. Uh, Allegedly, there are hundreds of thousands of of German and Polish uh, people showing up at train stations with signs willing to host, giving numbers of people that can stay with them, perhaps indefinitely. Uh, Another really heart-rending image we've seen this week is as mothers going up to train stations and leaving hundreds of strollers for fleeing refugees to put their children and leave. Here's my point. As Christians, we pray for justice, we pray for deliverance from evil, and we mourn when that only seems to come through violence, and we throw ourselves on the mercy of God as we navigate that complexity. And as Christians, we are mindful that we fight a war that ultimately is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and power. And we fight that war with strollers and spare bedrooms, and we never give ourselves permission to stop believing that our enemy is created in the image of God. We fall on the mercy of God to deliver us from the injustices of the world. Let's pray. God, we cry out for mercy for Ukraine and her people and the people fleeing and the people who have already died and people who are grieving their loved one's death. And because of who you are and the cruciform character which the cross calls us towards, uh, we offer that mercy and we plead that mercy for both the Russians and the Ukrainians and every apathetic human being around the globe who gets the luxury of not worrying about these things from the comfort of their couch. Uh, Holy Spirit, we, we take the words of Jesus seriously, and we don't quite know what to do with them. Um, because it, it, it's easier to fight wars with bombs and guns than it is to, um, to fight with spare bedrooms and strollers, and yet we believe in the redemptive power of love. And so we pray for everyone in every facet of this complex situation, we pray for generals. We pray for soldiers. We pray for civilians. We pray for politicians. We pray for antichrists. And we plead for mercy. Holy Spirit, direct us, move us. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, at the conclusion of the preaching portion of worship, we like to take time together and sit in the silence and listen to the voice of the Spirit. Perhaps the Spirit will correct something I said incorrectly, Perhaps the Spirit will say something new to you, so let's listen together for a few minutes.